you know, there, there was a time when my kids were younger that they used to think, see, our words matter to our kids. Even when you don't think they're listening to you, your words matter. Now, there was a time when they were younger where they really seemed to matter more than, than they maybe currently do. There was a time when they thought that what dad said had some meaning or some significance, that, that I had something to offer in terms of worldly wisdom. I, I was thinking about this and, and tra training up a child in the way it should go type thing. And I, I don't remember clearly exactly what trip this was, but in terms of your words mattering, we went on a trip and we had an old Toyota Corolla and it was tiny and we had three kids, I think. Courtney was maybe five, John might have been four, and Caleb was probably like one or two, and we had this tiny car, and we had them all crammed in car seats in the back. I don't know if any of you have done this. And then you had to cram all your stuff around them, you know? And so it was almost like a jigsaw puzzle, putting it all in there, and making sure that you know, nobody would get crushed by the stuff that would fall off. And it would take you know, 20, 30 minutes to get them all packed up. And inevitably, once you left home, or even worse, once you left the first rest stop you stopped at, Suddenly, there would be a cry from the back saying, no. Yes, that's usually the, that's the first cry. Then the second cry is, I need to go to the bathroom. Now, I never understood this cry because I would always try to reason with them. You just went to the bathroom. You can't possibly have to go again. But it didn't matter. They would just keep telling me that they had to go to the bathroom. And I'd play the game, right? I'd ask them, well, how bad do you really have to go, right? I still, by the way, I still do this in their, in their 20s. How bad do you have to go? Um, and then I'd do different things, like I'd, I'd lie to them about how long it would be until we we're going to stop. Oh, it'll be a few minutes, and knowing it was going to be like two and a half hours. Um, it, you know, it, all kinds of stuff. Hold it, can't you just hold it? But eventually, and, it, and if you play this game too long, you come to a rude realization. The bladder eventually wins these games. You can't beat it. It's, the bladder is undefeated. And so this one trip, you know when it's, you know when it's over? Is when the pee-pee dance starts, you know? You start to see the hip turns to the side, and you know, the legs start moving. And I remember uh, we were on this one trip, and they were packed in the back, all jigsawed in. And all of a sudden, John says, I got to go to the bathroom. And now you know, I go through all my stuff, and he couldn't hold it anymore. And the dance is going on in his car seat. So we pull the car over on the side of the road. I think it was on the parkway or on the turnpike, actually. And I got him out, and I took him over to the side of the road, and you know, the, the tree line. And I pulled his pants down, and I said, OK, go. And he looked at me with a look of indignation and, and moral judgment that has, has been reserved for, for horrible people. I mean, he looked and he's like, what do you mean go? We're not in the bathroom. And so I explained to him that John, it's okay sometimes, especially, you know, especially for boys, not because it's okay for boys, but it's easier for them if you know, we're being honest. If there's no bathroom and you really have to go and it's an emergency, sometimes you can go over in the woods. And he really struggled with this concept for a few minutes. There was some significant performance anxiety going on there. He just, you know, didn't know what to do. But finally, he let loose, you know, after a minute or two. And he hopped back in the car, a new man, and we reassembled the puzzle and headed back on our way. Now, fast forward about a week. Joan's home with the kids. Phone rings. Now, let me explain that we lived in Flanders, and we lived on the main drag in Flanders. Um, so everybody that was coming in out of the neighborhood drove by our house. And the neighbor calls and says, hey, have you been seeing what John is up to? And we said, no. Well, he's out in the front yard walking all around with his pants down, peeing all over as he sees fit, <laughs> greeting everybody coming home from work. 
And so Joan runs outside and says to him, what are you doing? And he said, it's okay, dad said so. Because my words mattered to him. The ones that I spoke, the ones that you've spoken, the ones that have been spoken to us, the ones that have been spoken from us. Words from a parent, right? I mean, they can speak life and love or death and disappointment. I'm 48 years old. Words of my parents, to this day, I can't understand this. It's something in the way that God made us, and he knows better than I, but there's something about the words of my parents even to this day. A year or two ago, it was Mother's Day, and I went to, uh, I went to spend it with my mother. My father's remarried, and he's remarried to a wonderful woman, but she wasn't my mom. He married her after, long after I had grown out of the house, but um, customarily, I go over and bring, a, bring something for Mother's Day there, but I hadn't gotten there that that Mother's Day Sunday because I had gotten caught up at my mom's house, blah, blah, blah. And so I showed up on Monday with a, a flower for my stepmother. And I walked in and, and my dad, I said, oh, is Carol around? And he said, no. He said, she's not here. And he's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I came over to give her a Mother's Day gift. And he's like, Mother's Day was yesterday. And I said, well, I know, but I was stuck with mom. And um, my dad was really mad at me. He was really disappointed. And he let me know. And so here I am, I'm, I'm a man in my mid-40s, uh, and I, I had this sense that I wanted to cry. I don't know if you felt that, but like I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I can feel my lip quivering. I'm 40-some years old, and I'm like, why is this hurting me so much? And then recently I was over at my dad's house, and we were talking about the kids and different things, and he said, uh, he said your, daughter, your daughters are going to have a real hard time finding guys. I didn't know what to do with that. So I said, uh, why is that? And he, he said, because there's not a lot of guys that are like you. And see, I still remember that. I mean, I, that'll resonate in my soul forever. My dad was proud of me. So these words, oftentimes spoken without thinking or understanding, they have power. And of course, when they're coupled with, with the actions of parents, good and bad, bad, when spoken incorrectly, when acted out incorrectly, they can cause these elephants in relationships between fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. A few weeks ago when I started the series, I, I asked you guys if you would let me know about the elephants in your family rooms. The issues that exist, that everybody knows are there, but nobody really wants to deal with it. The kind of things that prevent real intimacy uh, and peace in your home. And what was surprising to me was the amount of the elephants that had to do with mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. I didn't see it coming. Some of them had to do with respect and disrespect. Others of them had to do with broken relationships, um, being ignored. Here's what I tell you, that after marriage, the second biggest elephant in the family room, probably in this room, is the relationships that exist between us and our parents or us and our kids. And so what I want to do today is try to take the stuff that we've talked about in terms of dealing with these elements, uh, having these conversations, because all of us have moms and dads, or, or we are moms and dads. I want to look at our biblical responsibility in these relationships because the truth is, where we've dropped the ball in these places with our own kids or with our own moms and dads, that's where the elephants usually spring to life. And so my hope is that as we look back on these things, we can see just where it is perhaps that we fell a little bit short. We could use some of the other elephant 
techniques that, that we've been talking about over these last weeks. Things like that you have to be the one that goes and deals with the difficult issues and has the difficult conversation. Things like understanding what it is that causes fights and quarrels among us, what it is that causes fights and quarrels amongst you and your parents and your kids, uh, that, your, uh, that your mom and your dad and your, your son or your daughter are human beings, all those things, that you could use those things and move into these areas that are broken. Now, here's what I need you to understand, because if you get this, it's going to help you tremendously. Nobody explained this to me before, and I still think this is the church all over, our church included, has to do a better job. Nobody teaches anybody how to parent. I just find it the funniest thing. It's the most important responsibility you'll ever have. You spend more time learning to do everything in your life, and you spend no time learning how to parent. We just somehow think it comes natural. It doesn't come natural. Usually what comes natural is not good in the parenting aspect. It's our flesh and our brokenness. But here, I want to start with helping you understand a foundational thing about your children. When you look at what Jesus teaches in the scripture, you have to understand and remember the culture into which the words were spoken. For example, a couple weeks ago, we looked at what Jesus spoke about women and wives. These words regarding the treatment of women were absolutely jaw-dropping, revolutionary into, into the world in which they were spoken. Nobody had ever talked about women this way. We, we take those words for granted now. But please don't, don't misunderstand the power that they had in the culture. It was shocking that Jesus would say what he said. And so today, by way of background, I want to make sure you understand something about what Jesus thinks about children. Jesus is born into a Roman-dominated world. And in, in the Roman um, family type, the father was a powerful figure because he possessed almost unlimited power within the family. The father in the culture into which Jesus was born, had the power of life and death over his children, meaning that at their birth, he could choose to raise them or kill them. And later, he could punish them by execution if he so chose. The celebrated founder of the Roman Republic, Brutus, had his sons executed for disobedience. In addition, early Roman fathers owned... This is fascinating. Early Roman fathers... And think about the impact this would have on children. Early Roman... Uh, the early Roman father owned all property in his family. His children, no matter how old, were unable to own anything in their own name as long as the father lived. A 45-year-old senator could hold the highest office of the state, but if his father was still alive, he couldn't own a denarius worth of property. The father had the power to make or break his children's marriages. In early times, fathers ruled their households and their authority maintained order and stability and was unquestioned and often abused. And into this world comes this rabbi. When I was a kid, we were going to a neighbor's house one time. And uh, I was, you might find this hard to believe, but I was kind of a loud kid. Um, my father would always be telling me inside voice, inside voice. And uh, I think my parents were usually worried about what I was going to say. And I remember we were going to, uh, just like the elders are here now at Meta Mills Community Church. <laughs> And I remember we were going to a neighbor's house one time, and my dad, before we left, stopped and looked at me, and he said, I want you to remember something. Children are meant to be seen and not heard. Now, I'd never heard that before, but he said it with such conviction that it sounded like it was, like, from the Bible. Like, and it was so, I remember just feeling really devalued. Because, um, you know, you want to pretend like you're in with the parents, like you're cool and you can keep up in the conversation. And that just, I don't know, it just bothered me, right? 
So into this world, Jesus, Jesus comes. And there's a really familiar story, and maybe you're so familiar with it, it's lost its power. Most of you know it. But Jesus one day is teaching, and, and here come children. And parents are bringing them, and they likely want Jesus to bless them or, or heal them. And, and so into this world, or in this world, the disciples do what the disciples would normally do. They say, get the kids out of here. My, we have a running joke in my family. My father and uh, his brother, when they'd get together on Thanksgiving, we'd have the cousins that all be together, we'd all be little kids. And my uncle used to always scream to my aunt, Beverly, get these kids out of here. And uh, that was kind of the, you know, the, the, what the disciples, their attitude was, Beverly, get the kids out of here. This is Jesus. He's teaching. The kids are supposed to be seen and not heard. And so here's what happens in Mark chapter 10. The people brought children to Jesus, hoping he might touch them. But the disciples, as they should have, shooed them off. But Jesus, and don't miss the word here, and this, this is the message translation, don't miss the word here. Jesus was irate and let them know it. Don't push these children away. Don't ever get between them and me. These children are at the very center of life in the kingdom. And with this simple invitation to come, Jesus raises the stature of children beyond what anybody could have ever seen coming, from possessions to people to human beings who have purpose and importance, who are not merely going to be important when they grow up, they're important now, who are not merely mini-me's or possessions. Jesus is saying, in fact, later on he would go to say, unless you guys become like these children... Unless you're transformed to have an attitude and a heart like theirs, you're going to miss out on the kingdom of heaven. Later on, he would, ever, he would say, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, because Jesus understood the culture, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. Jesus identifies himself with the lowly children and tells you and I to change the way we think about kids. You need to change the way you think about your kids. Because it turns out they should be seen and heard. They matter a lot. It's interesting. Because you get these cards back, and, and most of us, so many of us, are struggling with this, these relationships, these mother-father-son-daughter relationships. And that was surprising to me, but it really wasn't surprising to God. Because, in fact, the truth is, it turns out, in our fallen world, it seems that this is more common or normal than most of us would think. My guess is, if I pulled this room right now, I think you and I, many of us, would be shocked about how much distance and pain there are in these relationships. So it's pretty interesting. Catch this now. It's pretty interesting. That as the Old Testament, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible, but as the Old Testament draws to a close, in the final chapter of the final book of the Old Testament, God was about to be silent for hundreds of years to his people. In the final chapter of the final book, there's a prophecy about one who was to come that they should be on the lookout for. One who would come in nature, like the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who would turn out, as some of you know, to be John the Baptist. And he would come and he would announce a new kingdom and a new, uh, a new king, speaking of Jesus. And the scripture says that this prophet would come and his preaching would have, now parents and children, many of you are both a parent and a child, you need to hear this. 
that, that this new king, there would be something that would be, um, that would be kind of the residue of those who follow him. This new kingdom would have one key thing going on in it. The Old Testament, the last chapter is saying, if you want to know who the Messiah is going to be, if you want to know the one who's going to come and speak in preparation for the Messiah, look for this message. Because this is the message of the messenger of the kingdom. You ready for it? Malachi chapter 4. God says, I am sending you the prophet Elijah, one who would come like Elijah, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. But think of all the things that could have been indicative of the coming of Jesus. And what's more indicative than anything, according to Malachi, is look for what happens with mothers and fathers and sons and daughters in their hearts. Because something has happened in this kingdom, the kingdom of the world that we live in now, that many, many, many times the hearts of fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, they are no longer aligned. They have grown distant or far or cold. What the scripture is saying is that there is a kingdom coming and there is a king coming. And he can have the ability, he will have the ability to change people's hearts and it will be a place, this kingdom, where followers of this Messiah, a trademark church, listen to me now, a trademark of the lives of those who follow Jesus will be those whose hearts are getting realigned and moving towards their sons and daughters and their mothers and fathers. And so today, if you count yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if he dwells in you, if his life is becoming alive in you, there is a call on your heart to move, to re-engage your mom and your dad and your son and your daughter. And so with that, by way of background, that number one, Jesus changed the game in terms of who kids are and how they should be treated. And number two, the call of the kingdom, the mark of the kingdom, is hearts of parents and kids towards one another. What I want to do is, is, is show you some biblical roles for both, for both of us, since most of the kids are gone, roles that we have as, as fathers and mothers and roles that we have as sons and daughters. Uh, I want to give you considerations for, for places where you, you might have done well or, or places where you might have broken things down and in those places perhaps created elephants. And then I hope you'll go back and use some of the techniques we've talked about to move into those things and bring some healing. So here's, here, I want to start with five things I believe. If you can get them right with your kids, they can prevent elephants. Here's the first one. It's not brain surgery. It's gonna, you're going to say it's natural, and in many ways it is. The first thing you have to get right in your relationship with your kids is this. You have to love them. Now, I know that's not earth-shattering, Almost every one of you would tell me you love them. But I can't tell you how many people tell me they love their spouse and yet they cheat on them. Because remember, telling yourself that you love your kids is not telling them that you love them. And remember, too, that love isn't a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. Loving your child means prioritizing your child and doing it over yourself. That's what love is. It's elevating another's interests and needs and desires above your own. 
Every parent would tell you they love their child, but, but if you look at the way they spend their time, and if you look at where their passions lie, if you look at, at where you spend your time, and where I spend my time, and what I think about all the time, if I, if I looked at your calendar, if you looked at my calendar and I added up the hours, would it show, would it show you that I love my child or I have a child? Because love is a choice. Love is sacrificial. Sometimes that, I think we, we do the kid thing like we do the spouse thing. Right? We talked about this when we talked about spouses, which is, well, I want to get married. Why? Well, I want, to have a, I want to have a companion. Well, then once we get married, what do we want to do? Well, I have a couple of kids. Because in my mind, I want to create this little thing where I got a wife and I got a couple of kids and, you know, this, I got everything I wanted. I want a nice family. But here's the deal. Your children weren't created by God for you to complete your kingdom. They were created by him to complete his kingdom for his purposes. If you get nothing else out of this whole series on elephants, please understand this, okay? And I, hopefully you're getting it by now. Do you know what your children are? They're human beings. Human beings. Broken. Created not in your image, in God's image. Created with their own dreams. Created with their own futures, their own pathways. They're human beings made in God's images. Our job is to love them and to prioritize them. And maybe for some of us as parents, maybe there's places where some of our dreams and hopes and plans, maybe they need to die a little bit in order that theirs might live. Don't tell me you love your kids. Unless you love your kids. So here's the second thing to talk about. Second thing I want you to reflect on. Second thing you need to do, and it's, it, the culture we're in seems to be against this now. Second thing you need to do, and it's got to be soaked in love, okay? Because the second one, apart from the first one, is horrible. It's especially for those of you with younger kids. Second thing, or, or those of us that, whose kids are older, maybe you look back and go, I miss this, but it helps you understand how you got elephants. Second thing you need to do is you need to discipline your children. Some of you people need to discipline your children. My, I'm not really actually talking about folks in our church, but my wife is, is, works in the school system. My daughter is a school teacher. And I'm telling you, man, I can't. I mean, the stuff that goes on, is, it's, it's like somebody's decided that, that we shouldn't discipline anymore. Um, now, I, could, I could stand up here all day and give you Bible verses on discipline. That's how important the scripture seems to indicate it is in terms of disciplining your child. Now, I'm going to read you some verses from Proverbs. Again, understand the culture into which it was born. I don't know if you're a spanker or not a spanker. That's your deal. I'm not going to get into that, okay? But understand that to the culture that this was written, it was written to a, a spanking culture. Proverbs 13:24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. Hates his son. Oh, but I love him. How could I possibly discipline him? He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently with intent and purpose. Diligently. Because you're called to love your children exactly the way that God loves you. That's why he calls you father. You to reflect the discipline of God. And why does God discipline us? Proverbs 3.12. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. 
You need to understand, if God did not love you, he would not discipline you, he wouldn't care. The discipline of the Lord is, is, is born out of his love for you, just like the discipline of your children should be born out of your love for them. Never, especially you spankers, never discipline out of anger. Never, 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 never. Now, you know, I, I know the cultural tide is against this at this point, but remember, it was the 90s. Uh, so, you know, we were spankers. And I had my first child, God love her, she had the toughest spirit on the face of the earth. I spanked this kid so many times, I said to Joan, I can't spank her anymore. I don't know what to do. I mean, if I spank her again, what am I going to do? It's, do? it's doing nothing. And one of the things, a couple of things I learned along the way with, with this, I mean, if I was to say how many, <laughs> if I was to say, break down percentages, I have four kids, break down the percentages of who got what percentage of spanking, Courtney got 90% of all spankings ever handed out uh, at the Eisman house. Now, one, a couple of things you learn along the way. Do not spank out, do not spank or discipline out of anger. If you are disciplining out of anger because it makes you feel good, you miss the whole point of it. Discipline is not there to make you feel good, to right a, a perceived wrong. Okay, discipline is because you love the child and it's for their benefit. I remember one time, I, could, I didn't know what to do with Courtney anymore, and so uh, I said to Joan, I can't, I can't spank this kid anymore because I'm going to get arrested. And uh, you know, I'm joking here, but... <laughs> so I came up with... And then I put her in her room, you know, this whole timeout thing. She wasn't buying it. Um, so I put her in her room, and she'd walk right back out and look at me. And uh, so I said, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reverse the doorknob. Remember, it was the 90s. So... <laughs> I reversed the doorknob and put the lock on the outside, right? Ingenious, so that she couldn't walk out anymore. I, I, I'll teach her. Well, sure enough, I put her in a room, I locked the outside, she bangs and kicks, you know, and I'm feeling somewhat self-satisfied that I've uh, finally taught this kid something. And a little time goes by. Remember that neighbor that called me about John in the front yard? <laughs> neighbor calls again. Is everything okay? I said, yeah, everything's fine, why? Well, Courtney's hanging out the window screaming, somebody help me, help me. <laughs> So I had to come up with another plan again. But see, I know you get tired of, I know discipline is hard. What, what I feel like is because we've all become so incrementally busy in our lives, it's harder and harder to discipline kids well. Like, it's just easier to let it go. Like, eh. But I'm telling you, if you love your kid, it, it, this, is what, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about God. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. And shall we not much, much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our fathers disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, so that we can share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I was driving with Courtney the other day, and she said to me, I would probably never say this to anybody else, which you can never say to your father when he's the pastor, but I'm going to raise my kids just like you did. It doesn't seem pleasant at the time. And by the way, if you're enjoying the discipline, that's probably something, you know, God doesn't enjoy disciplining his children, but he, he does it for our good. So, so and let, me, let me just give you this last one. In general, in general, in general, Discipline is for a certain period of time in your relationship with your children. 
If your children are there in their 20s and you're still trying to discipline them, you miss the boat. Here's what we tend to do, too, what I see happen all the time. We didn't discipline in the years when we could have disciplined, but now that they're 16, we want to try to discipline. My son is a, like a state-level wrestler. Trying to discipline him is not going to end well for me. <laughs> right? The time for certain levels of discipline was, if you think, for example, that your 24-year-old that you're really upset with because he's not doing things, she's not living the life you want them to live, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to discipline them by not talking to them ever again. That's wrong. You missed it. You missed that. That's not discipline. Here's what the scripture says. Proverbs 19, 18. It says, because the time goes quickly, parents. It says, discipline your son while there's hope. And do not desire his death. What they mean, what the scripture writer, the writer Proverbs meant is, if you don't discipline at the, while there was still hope to change the child, you're essentially just kind of handing the kid over to death. You got to discipline your kids. You got to do it out of love. You got to not be too tired to do it. And you got to, and there's a point where you stop. There's a point where you stop. Because your relationship begins to change. Here's another thing you need to think about with your children, especially as they get a little bit older. You need to, here's what the scriptures would say. You need to train and teach your children. Many of you know the, the famous verse, right? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. While there's still hope, train them when they're young. Get it in there. Now, what does it mean to train a child? How do you train your kids? This is, you know, uh, I, one of the places I, you know, Joan and I are far from perfect parents. My kids will tell you about it. It's even hard for me to get up here and talk about parenting because I made mistakes. One of the things, one of the places where Joan and I have not been good is in quiet times and gathering the family around for scripture studies. Uh, the other night, I don't know how this came up, but the kids all started laughing. Remember when dad used to try to do quiet times? <laughs> um, so we haven't been great there. Um, but I will tell you something that, that has had impact in our house. It it's comes from uh, Deuteronomy, a book in the Old Testament. This is what the, the writer says, the words of God. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Okay, they're not just to be on your walls, but they're to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. How do you do that? You talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lay down and when you get up. In other words, you need to be training your children in the things of God during the every normal day of life. The time for training for your children is not what's going on upstairs right now. That's great. But relative to the importance of how it's going to change their lives, it's going to have very little impact. What's going to have the impact, I, your quiet times are good and you should do them. And I respect you that are successful at it because you're better than me. But if you limit the God time to the quiet time, and it is not just constant in your home. If you're not constantly talking to your kids about God. My kids get sick of me talking about this. Right? Now, I know I'm the pastor and all the rest. Maybe you'd expect that. But, but I don't do, if you know me, I don't do anything in real religious ways. Like, I, I'm just always trying to make God natural to them. We watch something on TV, I start talking about God. They strike out in a baseball game, I talk to them about God. They kick the winning goal, I talk to them about God. Doesn't matter what we're doing. Figure out a way. Figure out a way to work it into the conversation. 
right? You're trying to train them in the things of God so that God isn't something they experience on Sunday, but they start to understand that God impacts everywhere. All these commandments, all these things that the Lord talks about, they're not just to be reserved for like a courthouse, a concrete stone outside a courthouse. They should be, they should be continually being discussed in your home. One of the things we do that's been kind of fun and cool, although it's becoming slightly awkward and a little bit geeky, is uh, every time there's a, a, a big... Um, Holiday. Hey, uh, you know what? I'll give you a couple things that struck me about this, okay? When I went to see my son, um, John, at Pepperdine, when he went to Pepperdine his first year, walked into his dorm room, and all over his wall were yellow stickies with Bible verses on it. I didn't tell him to put them there. But something happened in his heart, and he just was writing these things down. Uh, six months, nine months ago, we couldn't find my mom. My mom's in bad health sometimes, and I was calling her, and she wasn't answering, and I went to her house and she wasn't answering the door. And so I was starting to get a little bit nervous um, that maybe something bad had happened to my mom. And so Caroline and I were in the car. It's kind of funny. We're going to go to the diner because my mom's at home. She's at the diner. And so uh, we're driving to the diner, but we were all scared. You could feel the tension in the car. And Caroline in the backseat goes, Dad, can we just pray? Because there was a sense there that God wasn't contained to church on Sunday. But God, can we call on God right now in this situation where we are? I'll give, you, I'll give you the next one. Again, these kind of go as you go as you're raising these kids, you're raising your kids, and maybe you've dropped the ball on this, and maybe these are elephants that need to, maybe you need to go back and talk about this. Here's the next thing you need to think about, parents. You need to consider them. You need to consider your children. This is one my wife has done a good job helping me to appreciate over the years. She's been a voice in my ear about this because I am somewhat of a type A guy. I can be kind of demanding on my kids, uh, maybe too demanding on them sometimes, maybe too perfectionistic sometimes. And Joan will whisper this into my ear all the time. Uh, Ephesians 6.4. I don't know why she knows this verse. I wish you'd memorized other verses, but <laughs> this one she has down. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger. Do not constantly be trying to get into it with your kids. Here's the writer of Colossians. I love this translation. It's chapter 3. He puts it this way. Fathers, and of course this is into the culture, so it's really, you know, it can be, it's apropos for fathers and mothers. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children, or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. Now, I don't know if any of you grew up in a house like that, where you walk every, it's just constant, constant, I'm not good enough, I'm not, everything I do is wrong. You know, parents, don't replicate that. My favorite psalm, I could read it all day long, is Psalm 103. My favorite part of my favorite psalm is when David says this, he, and, he, and this is how the Lord loves us, and this is how you're to love your kids. David says, the Lord is compassionate. Could your kids say this about you? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. He will not always accuse, and he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Parents, can you... Can, can, can you remember that when you're dealing with your kids? Because can I give you, a, a, maybe if you're, you've got younger kids, you haven't realized that, and maybe I can get an amen out of this, you're going to have to pick your battles because you're going to have lots of battles. 
And if you choose to pick every battle to fight, you're going to lose your kid. I want to repeat that. If you pick to choose, if you choose to fight every battle, you are going to lose your kid. Fathers, don't overcorrect your children, or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. You're going to have to let some things go. You're going to have to choose those places where to correct. It can, your house can't be a place of constant punishment, punishment, punishment. When I was younger, when I would ask my mom, my mom would tell me to do something, I'd say, why do I have to do that? You know what she would say? Works great when you're six. Doesn't work so great when your kid's 16. You've got to come alongside and explain. You've got to be considerate of them. You know why you have to be considerate of them? Because they're human beings. You gotta say, here's why I don't want you to do that. And I know you might not believe that I'm right, but I just ask you to, to respect me in this. One last thing is important. It's one I've learned along the way, where I've, one I've made mistakes with. One last thing, in terms of considering your kids, you need, to, you need to, to study your children. You need to understand that they're each different. What motivates one might speak judgment to another. The exact same words. What motivates one is putting the weight, a weight, a burden on the other. Study them. Understand how they work. Understand that their hearts are different. Now there's this one. And this one has some pain. I had a line of people crying after the first service because this one is true for many of us. But here's the last thing you need to do with your kids. You need to release them. And you need to release yourself. I'll tell you what I mean by that. There are different stages, right, in, in raising these kids. Uh, when, when we mess up those stages, when we don't discipline them at 6, but we think we're going to discipline, uh, discipline them at 16, it, it messes things up. It grows elements. Another key is that when it's time, you have to let them go. Here's what I mean by that. Your kids are human beings. And that means they have a purpose and a call that is not necessarily yours or one that you would choose for them or even think is right for them. They have been given by God, much to your chagrin and mine, I wish he had not given them this, but they have been given by God the same gift you are, which is free will. And that means they have been given by God the right to choose a spouse of their liking, to choose a job of their liking, to choose a path of their liking, and here's the truth. We don't like it, but here's the truth. To choose a God of their liking. You can't make them a Christian any more than you can make them a Major League Baseball player. There's a great story. All of you know it, the prodigal son, right? His son comes to the father and he says, essentially, Dad, I'm wishing you dead. I would like your stuff now. Now, this is incredibly embarrassing to the father. He's going to have to sell his land. He's going to, it's going to be known all over town. What kind of father would raise a son like this? And father, I'm sure he tried to talk him out of it. I'm, I'm sure he, he, he said, uh, you know, this is not the right path for you. I, I wouldn't choose this for you. But do you know what the father did? He let him go. He let him go. He didn't approve of it. He didn't desire it for him. 
likely told him it wasn't the right path, and then he let him go. He didn't curse him. He didn't break relationship with him. He didn't tell him, I'm ashamed of you. In fact, here's what he did. Here's what the scripture says. Scripture says that the father, after the son had left and embarrassed him, stands out on the hilltop in front of the neighbors who were probably going, man, what kind of son do you have? Stands out there and waits for his son to come home. You're going to need to let them go. And here's a powerful thing that I, I, I need you to understand because it can bring freedom to a lot of you. How your kids turn out is not necessarily a reflection of the kind of godly parent you were. How your kids turn out is not necessarily a reflection of the kind of parent you were. They're human beings with their own free will. They're going to do what they're going to do. You can advise them, but your job is to let them go and to love them like crazy. They're not always going to be a reflect. It's, they're not a reflection of my friend. Well, I can't tell you. I have a friend. Um, holiest guy I know. Best Christian guy I know. I mean, he did it all. My spiritual mentor. Three kids. One went to West Point. One married a chaplain from West Point. The other wound up drug addicted and pregnant on the streets of Los Angeles. Which one's the reflection of her father? Your kids are, let it go. Many of you know one of the words for, the, for, for, for Satan in the Bible is the accuser of the brethren. If you hear those words and you're, look what you did to your kid, look how you messed them up. Listen, you know who else is a human being? You are too. That's not the voice of the Lord. You need to let them go and you need to, you need to, to, to in a sense, release yourself. All right, a couple quick thoughts on, on the other side of this, and, and then I'll be done. First thing, on the parent-child thing, so many of us have broken relationships with our parents. Here's the first thing. It's the first thing that's true of, parent, uh, of the way you are to be with your kids. You need to love your parents. Don't tell me you love your parents. Don't tell me you love your parents unless you love your parents. If I looked at the way you spend your time, if I looked at the way you spend your money, if, if I looked at the way you use your words, do you love your parents? Or have you failed there? Have you just thought your parents' role was to give to you, 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 and when they didn't come through, well, you know, do you love your parents? Because love is sacrificial. Love means that sometimes I, I, I'm made less so that you might be made more. Do you love your parents? Or do you just constantly think it's all about them lowering themselves for you? I'm chief offender at this. I need to do better at it. Have you modeled it to your children? Second one, this one's going to seem weird if you're maybe over the age of 25 or so. Second one is this. You are called to obey your parents. Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. Now here's what I need you to understand. This command is written to children, not to adults. Right? Because once you get to a certain age, you should have been set free. You're responsible for your own decisions. You don't have to listen to everything your mother and father tells you to do anymore. But if there's an elephant in your relationship with your mom or dad, here's the question you need to ask yourself. When you were 16 or 17 or 18, when you thought they just had no clue, did you lead a life of disobedience? You look back and go, man, that was just a trail of me not obeying my parents when I was a kid. 
Can you imagine the power of a phone call to your mom or dad right now and saying, you know what, I've been thinking about our relationship and maybe th where things got a little off track. And I've got to be honest with you, as I've looked at it, when I was a kid, I did not obey you. And I should have. I sinned against you, and I'm wrong for that. Imagine getting that call from your kid. The elephant that takes out of a room. They may have acted incorrectly, reacted incorrectly, not done the right thing. But look back and wonder and, and say, man, did I drop the ball on that? Two last ones and then I'm done. I'm going to give you this one. You need to honor your parents. Ephesians. Children. I love the way this, the, the Bible puts this. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And this is actually the way it is in the scripture. This is the first commandment with a promise. In other words, listen, there's a promise attached to this one. If you will honor your mother and father, it's going to go well with you and you will live long in the land. When that was written, that was a way of saying you'll be blessed. Listen, you want the blessings uh, of God? Honor your mother and father. Honor your mother and father. Here's what I know. You're messed up because of your mom and dad. And so am I. Here's what I know. You know what you're doing right now? Messing up your kids. This is what we do. We're all broken. We're all messed up. And I know you may be going, well, how do you want me to honor them? Do you understand what happened? Do you, uh, do you, know, do you know what they caused, what they've done? I get that. But, but the first thing I'd say is when you speak of your mom and dad, is there any sense of reverence or honor? W would your kids, when your kids hear you talking about your mom and dad, would they say, man, my father really reveres them. My father honors them. My father loves them. And I know there's big stuff and deep stuff. I know, I know the words that were spoken to you sometimes are hard. But here's the last thing in the relationship that you're called to with your parents. You're called to forgive them. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, especially to your mother and father. Forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Hey, breaking news, do you know what your parents are? That's right, human beings. Human beings that had their own plans, their own desires, their own hopes, their own dreams. Human beings that, that had bad days. Human beings that said the wrong thing, whose motives weren't correct, they weren't always right. Broken and sinful. And you know what you're to be? Kind and compassionate, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. Let me get the worship band to come up. Here's a story on elephants with, with your kids and with your mom and dad. If, if you're not a Christian, you could check out of this part of this and just go, those are good principles, and go home and maybe try to enact some of those principles. But if you're a believer, if you're a believer, here's what you need to hear. The mark, the residue of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the last word spoken in the Old Testament prior to silence for hundreds of years says if you want to sense and know that the prophet that I'm pointing to is the right prophet, he will have the ability to turn the hearts of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters towards one another. That's the call on those of us who want to follow Jesus. And it's the call on you because while we were yet sinners, Christ came. While your sons and your daughters have not acted and done as you wanted to do, too, you still go. 
while your mother and father have said things and done things that you wish they hadn't and that have hurt you. Jesus says, I know. You still go. We're going to close. As we close, stand with me as we close. We talk about going to the cross. And at the cross, we see ourselves, right? Our brokenness and our shame. And there we sense our humanity. And there we sense what Jesus did for us. And there we sense what we're called to do for our moms and dads and our boys and our girls.